Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Pacini, represented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, Jim Root from the Three Man Weave is here. Uh, Jim, how you doing, man? Uh, it's been, what, maybe four months since you've been on here? Yeah, you got you clearly got sick of us after the, uh, the season-long pool preview, and I'm just glad to get another invite back. I never get sick of you guys, and I invited Jim just because, you know, Jim doesn't have a day job, so it's easy just for me to podcast with Jim. I still, still love Matt and... Kai, uh, you know, I appreciate them thoroughly, and I, I would love to have them back on as well. Please forward along my uh, my apologies. <laughs> that was a very generous way of saying I'm largely unemployed, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you are not largely unemployed. You have a lot of stuff going on right now. You have a three-man weave. You have uh, some stuff at SI. You have wh- What else do you have? Uh, I'm, I'm working for a startup here in Vegas. Uh, plenty of consulting that we do for professional gamblers. We're all over the place. So you're right. I'm I'm certainly not uh, lacking for things to do. No question. You, you're fine, Jim. Let's let's be honest. So and the reason that you're on here, we're gonna basically just reset the college basketball season, heading into what will essentially be the final month and a half here, and get. Folks ready to watch conference tournament season, uh, to watch the end of the regular season, and uh, just some stuff to prepare for the NCAA tournament here that will be coming uh, basically within four weeks now. I think we're within four weeks, right? Yes. Selection Sunday is less than four away. Uh, I'm, I'm geared up for it. Yeah, we'll, we'll have the first four games in, like, you know, four weeks from tomorrow. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Jim, before we get to the college basketball stuff, I do want to start on two things that, like, are NBA, but sort of kind of go a bunch of different ways, right? So uh, the first one is the Elam ending and the NBA All-Star game last night. So you said you watched all of the NBA All-Star game, essentially. I didn't watch it until this morning. I went to see Sonic the Hedgehog and the Harley Quinn movie last night that they've now renamed, like, three times. Uh, Oh, double feature. Look at you double feature the wife is off today so we decided to go to the movies um nice i think it was a better choice to be honest like i enjoyed the all-star <laughs> game but i'm not someone that goes wild for this thing i mean it was clearly more competitive this year how much of the competitiveness do you think had to do with the elam ending adjustment versus the uh just general desire to try and uh compete at a high level due to the uh, MVP award being named after Kobe Bryant, wearing the 24 and two jerseys, having a lot of competitive players in the game. Uh, how do you kind of try and distill the difference between the competitiveness we've seen in the past all-star games versus this one? I would go at least something like, like C40 towards the Elam ending. I think Anthony Davis said it <clears throat> after the, after the game, the interview that the format played a role in it too. And it's just like, I, I almost feel like it takes those guys back to pick up ball a little bit, or like you know, some of the off season stuff they do in those gyms in New York that all, all the clips get famous. Um, but it's like, all right, we have to get to this one target score. And for anybody that's played pick up, like when you're down to that last basket, like basically next bucket wins, it's so brutal. Yeah. Like you're not scoring inside. And that's, you know, that we can get into that too, expose the flaw that is, it, it's everybody's so prone to committing heinous fouls if you're close to the basket and ending on a free throw is probably going to happen more often than 
the Elam ending would desire, and it did last night, and it's kind of anticlimactic when that happens. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think that, you know, it was very physical, wasn't it? Like, especially in the fourth quarter, like, I thought that the refs really let them play in a way that made it feel like a pickup atmosphere. And it was a good thing, for sure. And it really helped set the tone of uh, what the Elam, Elam ending is meant to do. But I don't know. Like, I kind of feel like the refs were at fault for why it was as uh, foul-prone as it was near the end. And also, I think that uh, the the fact that this game could have ended multiple times with shots like LeBron pulls up from 40 feet uh, and tries to end it with a three and James Harden inexplicably passes up this layup to try and finish the game and instead hits a kick out pass for three uh, in an attempt to I don't I don't know why he did that to be honest but uh, it, it felt like there were a lot of opportunities for this game to end without a free throw but just given how physical it was, it was always going to end almost with a free throw down the stretch. Yeah, it's it kind of emphasized the need for like shooting. Like it's really hard for that game to end on a Joel Embiid post up because they're just not going to let him get a shot off when he's in there. So it needs to be something like that LeBron pull from from way downtown. That's why Steph Curry would have been fun in this game because you'd have had to guard him for basically as soon as he walked across half court because he would have been lining something up for sure. Um, and yeah, if it had not ended on a free throw, I think there might be a different narrative today just because, you know, there was always the risk of it. But if it ends on one of those, you know, the LeBron pull up, then everybody is just raving about it and how cool it was that it ended like that. So it does kind of depend on how the game flow goes towards the end. I see your point on the refs. It's, it, I think they were in a tough spot because it's one of those things where in a regular game, maybe someone could fall out and they'd be okay with it. But in, you're not going to follow somebody out of an all-star game, so they can't be like repeatedly calling fouls on the same guy. That'd be hilarious, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just just hey, keep calling fouls on keep calling fouls on Giannis for, you know, running and blowing through guys. That'd be great. I'm here for it. Uh yeah, no, I liked like the fact that it was this competitive, I do think that part of it was the Elam ending. I wouldn't ascribe sixty forty to it. I would say that there were and I was just on the radio with Doug Gottlieb, so this is why I'm thinking about this. And Doug kind of explained a similar manner to where to how I think about it. I think first and foremost, there are a lot of guys that are jostling to be the next LeBron, right? There are a lot of guys that are jostling to be the next guy, and this is uh, something of an opportunity to be on the floor with all of those guys and prove yourself as the potential successor in that regard. And then second, I think a big part of it was just having Giannis as a team captain and having him really set the tone defensively in the fourth quarter. Like he was out there blocking shots. He was out there really protecting the rim, playing physical, like having him around. Like, I feel like he lifted everyone's level in a way that was pretty real. Well, Sam, I'm sitting here in a Milwaukee Bucks shirt and Giannis basketball shorts. So I, I clearly might be a little biased in this, but I'd love to see Giannis attend to that, uh, ascend to that throne. And yeah, like the, the first block on LeBron on the baseline, like kind of trying to shoot a fadeaway jumper and he got in his face. That was pretty huge for, for setting the tone. I don't like, I don't think that the, the charity part of it had a huge deal because I, I got to believe they're going to, you know, make that equitable on both sides. So, you know, that's not a huge part of it, but, you know, there was some element to it and the fans were cheering in that regard, like that whole, the whole kids section cheering for one team or the other had some influence on the crowd noise, but 
Yeah, I, I guess there's probably a lot of factors involved, but I, I would still give a little more to the Elam ending in, in that target score. So the second NBA topic I wanted to talk to you about is just the John Beeline of it all. So Woj last night in the middle of the All-Star game, basically in the first quarter, drops this bomb that says uh, John Beeline is considering his future as the Cleveland Cavaliers coach and is uh, has possibly coached his last game as the Cleveland Cavaliers coach. And then uh, later today, Sean Strania, Jason Lloyd, Kelsey Russo, folks from my site over at The Athletic, come out and say basically it's likely that he has coached his last game with the Cleveland Cavaliers. So what are your thoughts on the John Beeline experiment? Let's let's assume that it's over, and let's uh, just generally kind of give takeaways on – how poorly did this fail? <laughs> I incredibly poorly. I I was shocked when he took the job in the first place, and I think I was too. Yeah, and I think you expressed like shock on the other side that like why does Cleveland want a guy this old with no NBA experience? He clearly, isn't somebody like Brad Stevens that's like ascending up into that role, ready to lead a franchise for twenty years. Um, and, and he wasn't being put in a situation like say Billy Donovan, where he was walking in with a bunch of guys who were ready to win and and it was just going to be like a five or six year thing where he tries to make a run at winning games it's one of the youngest rosters in the league no settled like lineup the the point guard situation with Sexton and Garland is a complete mystery uh, it, it was always a weird fit but for it to flame out this badly this quickly is really shocking and as a college basketball fan I'm I'm excited by it because I want to see him back uh, coaching somewhere in the future so, yeah, it's really interesting. I I was surprised, for sure, when he took the job because he took the job as a, what was he, is he 67, something like that? Like, John Beeline is an older guy right now. Uh, he is, yeah, he's 67 years old, just turned 67, so he took it at 66. And this roster is so far away from competing, the Cavaliers. Why would you do this now? Like, why is this the roster with two ball-dominant point guards that don't really fit what you want to do with zero defense long-term, given the fact that Tristan Thompson's a free agent after this season? I don't know why this is the fit that he saw as being useful. I mean, maybe he saw dollar signs for a moment and decided to just go for it because they offered an obscene amount of money over the course of many years. But I just am unsurprised that this is a failure in large part because you talk to folks around college basketball, and this is something I've talked about uh, on a previous podcast, but John Beeline is a guy that does not uh, really adhere to typical NBA terminology and really uses his own terminology. And secondly, he's a guy that really likes to have his fingers in kind of everything and is someone that uh, wants to call out like every single set before it happens on the court, and that's just not the way that the NBA rolls. And because of that, this was always going to be a tough adjustment. I remember talking to Luke Bonner on Twitter at one point, and Luke was like, yeah, like it took it took guys, you know, basically two years to figure out how to really work within the structure that was John Beeline because he played for Beeline at West Virginia. And it took these guys like two years to really figure out, hey, this is what he wants from us. This is what this word means. This is all of this. And in the NBA, you just don't have that kind of time, really. 
Yeah, and you know, there's that December report about the players being frustrated with the terminology and being yep. treated like children, basically. And that's, you know, that's what he's used to coaching. And I think when he first took the NBA job, there was chatter about him being kind of sick of recruiting. So, like, he was looking forward to the fact that he, he could just coach. But it's clearly not the same environment. That These are more adults that kind of are, they think they're, you know, ascending to the top of the NBA or the basketball world. And they're not really ready to be talked down to by a guy that's used to coaching 20-year-olds. So it has not gone well. Right. And, like, I think that people use the word, like, NBA players are entitled. And think of that as, like, a negative connotation. Like, yeah, you're damn right NBA players are entitled, and they should be in some regard. They're the best players in the world. They've earned this right. They are so much more important to a team's success. Uh, in many regards, or at least the star players are, than what a coach is. Uh, there's a reason that they make you know upwards of you know three to five times as much as what a uh, NBA coach makes. Like unless you're talking about Greg Popovich or someone like that, I mean, it, you're damn right that these players are gonna feel some kind of way about uh, having to deal with John Beeline on a day-to-day basis whenever John is making them go through some bullshit fundamental work. Right. Wasn't there, uh, like, a couple of years ago, people started to get, like, would you rather have Brad Stevens for the next 10 years or Giannis Adetokounmpo? And it's like, uh, it's clearly the player. It's, it's a player's league. And, yeah, it, Beeline just it never fit the, fit the setting of the NBA, which, you know, leads to the, the obvious question. I don't know if you want to get into it right away, but where does he go? And, I absolutely what, want to get into it. Okay. <laughs> so I, mean, I think that the only yeah. reason that you get out of this job now is if you're trying to put yourself out there on the market potentially for a job this year, right? Like that's really the only way it makes sense. Yeah, if he coaches the rest of the NBA year and almost everything's filled in mid-April, then he's kind of shit out of luck. Whereas if he's out now, then the the prime opportunities that may open will probably have him at the top of the list. Yeah, I would think so. Now this is going to be a weird year where Texas, you know, not to fire Shaka Smart before Shaka ends up leaving this job, but like, you know, it seems like the tide has turned on Shaka at Texas. I, again, this is something I brought up with Doug on the radio today. Like, I feel like he'll be the very least, you know, thought of for that job. Now, is he as good a fit as Chris Beard in Texas? Is he as good a fit as someone like Kelvin Sampson at Texas? No, I don't think he is. But I do wonder if, you know, that maybe someone goes to Texas that we're not expecting. And that opens another job because right now it doesn't seem like there's going to be a crazy amount of movement on the carousel. But a Texas opening can change that real quick. Yeah, and this it almost his name coming available incentivizes schools to to make a move too. Where like if if Indiana, for instance, is upset with Archie Miller, maybe they don't make the tournament, and they think they have a good shot at five years of John Beeline to try and you know resurrect a program, then it probably pushes their hand a little bit towards making a move too. Uh, and with Texas, there's the the twist of Luke Yaklich, his defensive whiz, just waiting on the bench already down there. If if Smart gets fired or, or resigns, then he can just go down there, and, and maybe that's part of it is he, he caretakes for five years and then hands it over like Bo Ryan did to Greg Gard or something like that, which, you know, he has no head coaching experience, Yaklich, but that might be something that they look to do. 
Yeah, the Indiana one's interesting. Archie has been there three years. He hasn't made an NCAA tournament yet. I mean, it's going to be tight this year. Like, would you say they're on the right side of the bubble right now? Barely. I, I just did the just did a bracket last night, and I think I have them in the uh, the, the Dayton first four arrangement. Yeah, it's going to be really tight. And if you look at their schedule, they have three home games, three road games, uh, Minnesota, Penn State, Purdue, Illinois, Minnesota again, Wisconsin. None of those teams are outside of the top 32 in Ken Palm right now. They probably need to win three of those games plus win a uh, Big Ten tournament game to get to 20 wins. And I think if yeah. they do that, you've got a Florida State win in there. You've got Ohio State. You've got Michigan State. Uh, you know, and maybe a few of those wins that might close the deal for you. Yeah, the the fact that they've done nothing interesting outside of Bloomington is going to eventually hurt them. I think so. Some sort of road win or neutral site in the Big Ten tournament is seemingly necessary at this point. Yeah, so it's going to be close. And if you're, you know, Indiana and you think Archie isn't doing a good enough job, and I think this would be an aggressive firing uh, from Indiana's perspective. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just because this Indiana team is going to be very good next year. Uh, Al Durham, Justin Smith, Trace Jackson Davis, Rob Finnessy, all these guys are juniors, sophomores, or in the case of. Trace Jackson Davis, a freshman, like they're going to have a lot of talent there next year. It's almost a ready-made situation to succeed for whoever is coaching there next year. I would probably give Archie another year. I I would give him the fourth year if only because, I mean, look, like you're only getting John Beeline for what, four or five years, like you said? And this is not like a long-term solution. Like I think that Archie's at least – got the potential still to be a long-term solution. Right. I, I would agree. And if this, if you allow me to nerd out a little bit here, uh, it, it reminds me in a weird way of the um, William and Mary situation last year. They had a loaded roster yeah. coming back, a, a coach that was kind of respected and then ended up firing him. A lot of people transferred, uh, but I think there's been whispers that it might've been, you know, a specific booster or a couple boosters that were like, we're not donating unless you get rid of him. So if there's some huge IU backer that says you, you go after John Beeline or I, I withhold my donation this year, then maybe their for their hand is forced, but all things equal. Yeah. I think with the talent coming back, it's almost better to go with the continuity. And by the way, Dane Fisher at William and Mary has done a ridiculous job this year. Uh, you know, he obviously yep. did have Nathan Knight and Andy Van Vliet is eligible now. So that's a, big useful thing that helps when you have a guy who's 6'10", who's the second best player in the league, and then a seven-foot floor spacer that every mid-major in the country would love to have. Uh, But I think they lost something like four of their top six guys from last year, either due to transfer or graduation. So uh, for Dane Fisher to come and turn turn that around, I think they're like, what are they, like 19 and 9 and have 10 wins in the league already? Like something like that? Yep, they're hanging around like that top tier. I mean, maybe they would have been better if they'd have brought Shaver back and kept everybody, but it's hard to take too big an issue with with how they've rebounded given that we thought they would stink. Yeah, so these things can work out if you make the move early. I mean, uh, it's hard to figure out who you think, like where you think John Beeline even fits. Like, Clemson clearly is willing to invest in academics or in athletics. I'm sorry. Uh, 
if there's a successful coach there, I, I just don't know if they're going to move on Brad Brunell. And, you know, honestly, after the week they just had, and uh, just given the fact that I don't think they really want to move on Brownell, uh, I, I kind of don't really think that's going to open, to be honest does, right now. Does, yeah, does does Wake Forest intrigue you at all for uh, him? I, I, <laughs> yes, but that's so much money. Like, it's still an eight-figure buyout for Danny Manning. Uh, eight figures, and then you're going to have to pay Beeline quite a bit to get down there, too. Yeah, that's that's tough. Right, and like a big thing with Beeline is, too, I'm really interested to see where the financial settlement comes in, if he's, like, considering leaving, like if, you know, the Cavs are, you know, going to settle with him as opposed to firing him, because there's no way John Beeline is leaving, like, all five years of this contract on the table, right, and just saying, I want a clean break. You guys can keep all your money. Like, otherwise you just kind of play it out for the next six months and get fired in, you know, maybe November or December next year. Yeah. I mean, that, and then that's, that sets up better for his next job too. Cause he, you know, still had that income coming in. Right. No question. So I, I mean, that's going to be a big part of this and figuring out who the, who the job is. Like, what is, what is the job that opens? Because right now, I'm really not because like maybe it is Texas like maybe maybe that's the one but if I'm Texas I mean do you hire John Beeline or Kelvin Sampson if you're Texas I would assuming Chris Beard says yeah. no that is yeah um yeah I agree with you I would go Kelvin Sampson over John Beeline um and I just don't know where the job is maybe it is somewhere like in Indiana maybe it's somewhere like a Wisconsin if they decide to make the move on Greg Gard, I don't know that they will now after you know, they have three top 10 Ken Palm wins, four top 10 Ken Palm wins, wins I'm sorry. Uh, it's going to be hard to keep them out of the tournament now, I feel like. Yeah, agreed. And, and to be clear, like I think I would rather have Beeline than Kelvin Sampson as a coach, all things equal. But yeah, the, the age thing matters and the, the uncertainty matters with him. So Samson, I think, is probably the better move there. I, I like your idea, though, that if something like Texas opens, then there's that domino effect of somebody leaves somewhere else and you just never know. So I, I think that probably would be, you know, what would happen for him. But I don't know where, where it would come from. Like, there's just not people that, well, let me, that let stand me, out to me. Let me pitch one. So Brad Underwood, you know, maybe Illinois goes on a late run here in the NCAA tournament, you know, they're sitting at 16 and nine. They've obviously lost a couple games recently, especially after I would assume moves injury. Uh, you know, they lose at home or on the road to Rutgers. They lose uh, home games to Michigan state and Maryland road to Iowa. Like none of these losses are bad. I don't think no one's sitting there and saying that Illinois is not going to be a you know top seven seed in the NCAA tournament. I don't think. So let's say they go on a little run here. At the end of the year, I mean, Brad Underwood has the experience from Stephen F. Austin. He's not someone that's afraid to jump jobs, certainly, if he thinks it's an upgrade. <laughs> um, that That's one that makes some sense to me. And then Illinois yeah. opens, and that's, like, actually a pretty real fit for Beeline. Yeah, that actually I, – I like the way that works. And Brad Underwood's been in the Big 12 before, too, even. So he, he wouldn't be uncomfortable if he took that Texas job. Yeah, um, so I'm going to yeah. be real interested in how this all plays out. I, I would imagine at this stage th – these stories don't get out unless John Beeline is done, is the Cavaliers coach. Like, it's it's just hard to come back from that at this stage, I think. Yeah, lame duck coaching when the players already seem like they're not – thrilled like that would be almost impossible to get him to listen to you yeah i feel like that's true too uh 
Before we move on, though, I've got a couple of sponsors here, uh, one of which is certainly important to Jim's uh, future. Not this one, but uh, oh God, certainly, where is this going? certainly the next one we'll get to. But first, let's get to Keeps. Uh, Keeps is a uh, hair loss treatment company. Two out of three guys will experience some form of male, male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. Look, you're talking to one right here because my hairline is going backward every single year. It is a disaster. The good news, though, uh, with today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss and help you keep the hair you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. You don't have to go broke to avoid going bald. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Plus, Keeps offers a prescription shampoo to keep your scalp healthy, too. Prevention's the key here. Keeps treatments really works. Uh, they're up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. So act fast. Many men even experience hair regrowth with Keeps treatments. Uh Look, again, I'm a big fan of companies like this. This is someone that uh, is undergoing difficulties with male pattern baldness. Jim, are, are you are you having that struggle yet in your life? I'm furiously knocking on wood as I answer this question. No, but my genetics would suggest that it is it is coming soon. The guillotine is hanging over my head. Oh God, is, is Papa Root going up up top? Yeah, and Grandpapa Root, it's, it goes way back. <laughs> oh, no, that's a disaster. Uh, here's the thing, though. Uh, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash game theory to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y. Uh, that's keeps.com slash game theory to receive that first month of treatment for free. Our second sponsor today is uh, it's Bet Online. Uh, Bet Online is obviously uh, an essential sponsor here for the Game Theory Podcast because we love to gamble here at the Game Theory Podcast. Jim Root, uh, a significant gambler living in Las Vegas, uh, does picks columns every week for Sports Illustrated. And if you go to the Three Man Weave, you'll see a bunch of picks up there every day too. Yeah, we've uh, we've we've dabbled in the gambling space for sure. So. This is very relevant. I have the luxury of uh, being in Las Vegas and have, having the choices of the casinos, but bet online is definitely crucial for anyone that does not have such a luxury. Yeah, no question. Uh, the footballs may be packed away, but uh, basketball, hockey, golf, and you could have even bet on the Academy Awards if you wanted to. Uh, you can find all the odds with our exclusive sportsbook partner, Bet Online. They have been in the industry for over 20 years, providing customers with the first two market odds and giving you the ability to bet anytime, anywhere. Head on over to betonline.ag and use our promo code CLNS. 50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit and have a little fun with some betting action today. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. So, Jim, I will I will give you the floor in terms of what do you want to start with with resetting this college basketball season. Oh man, that's a that is a Pandora's box. There's a lot of directions we could go here. So, I, I here's, feel like it Go ahead. I just the the 
like the big narrative that I think has hung over this season all year has been, are there great teams or not? And for a while, it really didn't seem like it with the, the rotating cast of characters that were atop the AP poll. But in the last couple of weeks, Baylor has really solidified themselves up there. They absolutely destroyed West Virginia over the weekend. Gonzaga has been winning consistently, sweeping the WCC. San Diego State's undefeated. Kansas has been great in the Big 12 outside of the home game against Baylor. So I, I kind of would pitch it to you. Like, do you still believe in that narrative that was very prevalent early, or is has it kind of faded away with the play of some of these teams lately? So I think that the first question you have to ask and answer when discussing this topic is, do you think that the play this season is commensurate with a level of play that we've seen over the past five years? Like, do you think the product on the floor is to the level that we've seen in the past, you know, even decade, let's say? In in micro instances every once in a while, like I, I'm thinking specifically of the, the Dayton-Kansas-Maui championship. Yep. I thought it was sensational. But Great game. By, yeah. By and large, I, I would say probably no. And I think maybe you were the one making this point about Baylor recently, that they're the clear number one team right now. Like there's really not a lot of debate that can be gone into that, and they might not have an NBA player on the roster. Certainly not uh, a top, like, 50 guy this year, which says something compared to, you know, last year when Duke had, like, three lottery picks and Gonzaga had lottery picks and other draftees. And, it, yeah, the, the talent level doesn't quite rise to the same echelon as, as in past years. Yeah, and I think that there are a few reasons for that. Uh, first and foremost, I think that the recruiting class this year, uh, the class of 2019, it just wasn't strong, right? Like, we can be honest about that. Like, his, other than some of the freshman big men, like Isaiah Stewart and Vernon Carey, and to an extent, like Zeke Naji, you know, there are guys out there, but I feel like there have not been a ton of great standout freshman performances this year. Would you agree with that? Yeah, like the the program or the supposed to be program changing perimeter guys like Anthony Edwards has not elevated Georgia at all. Like the team is still bad. Um and even some of the other guys, even the some of the Duke guys like Cassius Stanley, Wendell Moore, they're just fine. Same with uh, Kentucky's best players are sophomores and juniors. Maxie's been good too, but yeah, th- there hasn't been the same level of holy shit, these guys are definitely top five picks. Yeah, 100%. And part of it is, like, Lamella Ball goes overseas. RJ Hampton goes overseas. Uh, James Wiseman shuts it down. Like, we have reasons for, you know, the fact that three of the top ten kids in this recruiting class decided not to play college basketball, essentially. But I do think, in general, this was just always kind of a weak recruiting class. And then, to top that off, over the course of the last few years, we've seen – more kids enter the NBA draft and being willing to start their pro career a year earlier than we've seen in the past, right? Uh, You know, someone like Martin Crample at Creighton, or uh, I'm trying to think, like, who are are some other examples of this? Guys that left last year that – really could have made a significant impact in college basketball this season, but are in the G League now or are in Europe right now. There used to be a stigma against doing that. The stigma has faded, and it's led to more kids going pro. Uh, Also, the fact that they can test the waters and, you know, be out there until late May and then make a decision on whether or not they want to go pro. I think this has led more kids toward the NBA draft, and thus we're seeing a – drop in the talent level 
of players that are returning to college basketball. Like, can you imagine Tennessee right now if they had Jordan Bone, just given all of their point guard issues right now? Oh, yeah. He'd, he'd be a huge difference maker. I mean, in the same conference, like, you know, I don't know if his stock would ever have been higher, so it might have been smart, but Jared Harper at Auburn, like, if he comes back, that team's probably Final Four contender potential. So, yeah, for I mean, every, if like, Jared Patrick Harper comes Winston, back, That's yeah. like, that might be the number one team in the country. Yeah, and, that, and that's with um, – who, who's the guy that got hurt? I can't – his name is escaping me right now. Uh, Okoro and the, the one who went pro, uh, got drafted by the Magic. Oh, Chumo Kiki uh, you're talking about. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if he had come back healthy or, or been healthy at some point this year, then, yeah, definitely number one caliber team. So for every Miles Powell and Cassius Winston that does come back, we've lost a bunch of other guys that could have been stars that – We'll just never know because they didn't get to make that like senior leap that, that those guys have made. And then the final thing that I think is just holding back the level of playing college basketball right now, the officiating's fucking garbage. Like, <laughs> it's so bad. It's hard to watch college basketball games. Like, even the Stanford-Arizona game this weekend, like, I don't even think it was an egregious level of bad officiating, but, like, fucking Nico Mannion has three charge calls. You know, two of them were pretty legitimate to be honest but part of the reason that they're legitimate is that you know there's this culture in college basketball now because of the fact that officials reward guys for just like standing there and uh holding their nuts and taking charges right like there there seems to be something positive about that when uh, a lot of the time all it leads to is you know guys sliding under people whenever players are already in the air and creating dangerous situations i think that the incentive structure across basketball in general and the officiating in general is problematic and uh, it leads to games where you end up with you know there are games that have like 50 goddamn fouls in college basketball in a 40 minute game and it's just miserable to watch yeah the the charge thing is kind of it's kind of like a defensive hack where you get you get the ball and it's a foul on the offensive player I took a bunch of charges as a player, so I like. It's a defensive hack for white dudes, man. Uh, I'm here for yeah. I'm here for Jim Root and I'm here for Brad Davison, but like, I mean, actually, I'm not here for Brad Davison. That dude's being <laughs> reckless. But like, yeah, don't put. I I did not punch any nuts. Do not put me in that conversation. <laughs> but like, nonetheless, I mean, it's it's just these guys don't even make an attempt on the ball, and it's frustrating. Yeah, it. it I think Ken Pomeroy might have wrote about this once at The Athletic, about how if you made it just an offensive foul but not a turnover, it might even go down less just because the, the incentive, the reward, is nowhere near as big for it uh, as it would, like, the punishment yeah. of an and one versus not even getting the ball back, it, there's really not as much incentive to do so. So, yeah, switching that somehow would actually probably hopefully lessen the charge. And then there's just the refing in general and making sure that they only call a charge if it actually is a charge, which is an issue in itself. Yeah, it's just inconsistent, I think, is a big part of it. Like, it, there's just so much inconsistency with officiating uh, from one game to another that it's just really hard. It's really a slog a lot of the time to watch these games. And, you know, now to answer your question of are there any great teams, like you brought up Gonzaga, right? Uh, Gonzaga is 26-1. and one. They beat Pepperdine by 12. But prior to that, I mean, other than a game against San Francisco, they've been blowing the doors off basically everyone that they play, right? So yep. let, go down the roster on this Gonzaga team. It's Petrashev, Corey Kispert, Joel Ayayi, uh 
Ryan Woolridge, Admon Gilder. I really like Drew Timmy. You know, Killing Tilly is certainly maybe their most talented player, but he's been in and out of the lineup. I think he's missed like nine or ten games this year. Do you think that that team is anywhere near as good as last year's Rui Hachimura, Brandon Clark, Zach Norvell, Josh Perkins team, where Corey Kispert was like clearly the sixth best player on the team? And this year he might be yeah. the best player on the team? Yeah, no, it, it, it's like probably – you know, categorically worse, but they're, you know, top of the top of the tier this year. I think Woolridge is like the best example of this. And I've done this with San Diego state this year too, where it's like Woolridge is a key key guy for a top five team after being just like a fine role player for North Texas. Like he was decent for North Texas, but he wasn't And now he's fantastic for them. And with San Diego state, it's like the same thing with Yanni Wetzel. He, he was a part-time starter for a team that went 0-19 against the SEC, and now he's the second-best player on an undefeated team. Like, yes, role change matters and coaching matters, but it's crazy that that level of talent shift has gone on to being on such an elite team this year, which is part of why I think that the teams aren't as good. Well, Baylor is maybe the best example of this. Like Davion Mitchell, uh, two years ago as a freshman, who, and by the way, like Davion Mitchell, really good defensive player, not an awesome offensive player yet, but, you know, Davion Mitchell was essentially not a starter on that Auburn team, if I remember correctly. Uh, yep. Certainly came off the bench. He played something like, you know, 40% of their minutes. And now he's, you know, one of the two best players on an Auburn team. Uh, Macy Oteague played at UNC Asheville in 2018 and was really good at UNC Asheville, but like, you know, was not someone that uh, I think NBA scouts were beating down the doors to even go see. Freddie Gillespie started yeah. his career at a D3 school, for God's sake. Uh, like, th- there are just not a ton of elite-level, talented players across college basketball this season. And it's, I think, made the product worse, and that's why I think I struggle to say that there are any great teams. There are teams that are great in comparison to this level of competition. Like, I think Kansas is pretty damn close to great. I think Gonzaga is pretty damn close to great. Um, you know, we, we can mention Baylor. I, maybe I'm a little bit more down on Baylor, but that shouldn't come as a surprise just given what my job is, maybe. But, like, <laughs> you know, Baylor is darn close to great this year. And it's hard, I think, to come to a conclusion that says, you know, any team this year would win the national title last year. I, I don't even think there is a team that would make the final four last year, this year. No, you, you mentioned the way you look at it from your, your job, your lens of a draft evaluator. From my lens of a lot of gambling that I do out here, there are probably four or five teams last year that by the end of the year would definitely have had, like, favored on a neutral court against even Kansas this year. Like last year's Duke, Virginia, Yep. Michigan State, Texas Tech, Gonzaga, I think all five of them by the end of the year would have been favored over this year's Kansas on a neutral court. So I think Michigan State, too, agree. last year, by the way. Yeah, by the end of the year, like when they were beating Duke, and I think they're only like a, a one- or two-point underdog to that Duke team on a neutral court, I, I would definitely take last year's Michigan State team over this year's Kansas, which is weird because there's a lot of similarities between last year's Michigan State team and this year's, and they've fallen off so much, but... Uh, I, I'm with you. The the top is just not quite as good. Who do you think the best team in college basketball is right now? I would go Kansas. Uh, I think that's who I would have uh, top rated in terms of a gambling power rating, and they're the top of Ken Palm and 
but they did lose at home to Baylor. So, like, there's arguments that can be punched in that conversation. And I, I just was texting with Kyle and Matt this Saturday as Baylor got up by 25 on West Virginia. I was like, is is Baylor the best team? Like, what? Is, there's no real reason to doubt them at this point. Right. Uh but I'll say Kansas. That's just what I'll go with right now. I think I would feel most confident in Baylor making the Sweet 16, like out of any team in the country. But I would feel a lot more confident with Kansas winning the title than I would. I like that. With Baylor. I like that. There's there's such a safe floor with Baylor because of their defense. Um, but then you put them against other top 15, 16 teams and down to the wire, do they have like a, a late shot clock bucket getter like Devon Dotson? Um, maybe. Jared Butler's pretty damn good, but... I think there's at least a question that can be asked there. Well, and I do want to bring up Kansas. I think that the unit I trust more than any single like side of the floor in all of college basketball this season is Kansas's defense. I think Kansas is, and look, they're number one rated in Ken Palm, so like I'm not breaking news here, but I think Kansas's <laughs> defense is a genuinely elite uh side of the floor. Marcus Garrett, I think, should probably win Defensive Player of the Year, National Defensive Player of the Year, but I'm like not 100% convinced he's the most important defender on that team because you look at Yudoka Azubuke's numbers, uh, teams are shooting 45% around the rim when he's on the floor, and this is against uh, what has been the number one strength of schedule in all of college basketball this season. Uh, Whenever he's off the floor, teams shoot like 51-52%. From the rim, uh, they take like eight percent fewer shots or seven percent fewer shots even around the rim when Yudoka's on the floor. It's he is he is really made me reconsider if he is an NBA player this season, despite the fact that his overall you know counting numbers haven't gone up, uh, his per minute production has actually gone down. But I think he is better than we've ever seen him before. Yeah, just using hoop lens on off numbers, they give up 0.78 points per possession when he's on the court, which is just like microscopic. That's ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I I thought coming into the year, if they were going to play two bigs, it'd be a problem because of his lack of mobility. And then with with only one big, I was like, oh man, they're just going to throw him in every pick and roll, and he's in trouble. But he is his mobility is so much better than it was last season. It's not like switching onto point guards or anything, but he can get out there, he can hedge, and he can get back to the rim and protect it with almost with almost ease at this point. It's it's been kind of incredible to see his progression in that regard. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And you know, Marcus Garrett, we should spend time talking about Marcus Garrett because <laughs> uh, I've like started to consider is Marcus Garrett an NBA prospect. Uh, given the fact that he's shooting 37% from three and is probably the best defender on the perimeter in college basketball and is six foot five and is switchable. Like he is awesome. I love Marcus Garrett unconditionally. He might be one of my five favorite players in the country. And that's, and that's a good, a good conversation His favorite players. Marcus Garrett had this weird, he went eight games without making a three and then he went six for nine against Oklahoma. Like, all right. He just remembered how to shoot. (laughs) It's the best. It's so great when he just has these random, like, outbursts of shooting. Uh, They're not real, I don't think. Like, he made, (laughs) like, 40% of his threes this season in one game. That does not feel sustainable, but, like, he's a really good player, and I really enjoy watching him defend. He's the nation's top pickpocket artist, I think. Like, I don't think he's leading the country in steal percentage, but in terms of just 
you know, pickpocketing defenders, it's unbelievable. If you look at their non-steal turnover rate on Ken Palm, they're 350th in all of college basketball. But their overall turnover rate is 178th in college basketball. Like, it is ridiculous the effect that Marcus Garrett has on just hounding defenders and forcing turnovers with his quick hands. And he's kind of allowed them to, to play the four out. Like he's accepted the every once in a while he'll guard a big guy because he can guard four positions without really any issue. Um, and he can switch. He can They can throw him on the best perimeter score or they can throw him on like a six, seven power forward and he'll battle. So he, yeah, he's extremely valuable for the best defense in the country. So a defensive player of the year candidacy is more than deserved. Who is the team that you would put second in terms of winning the national title right now? Uh, probably Baylor, um, but I'm not excited about it. I think Duke or Gonzaga is up there. Gonzaga, just I'm worried about Killian Tilly ever being fully healthy. I mean, he, he just re-aggravated the ankle, and few said it's been a struggle trying to get it back to full health. Uh, and Duke has... Some concerns. I mean, they just rained down fire from deep against Notre Dame this weekend, so perhaps any shooting concerns should be quieted forever. But uh, they still have question marks at, at point guard with shooting with Trey Jones, and then they play a lot with Vernon Carey in the middle, and they need to get him going on the post, and sometimes that doesn't happen. So I'll go Baylor just because they've they've finally convinced me that I need to stop disrespecting them. Is that a fair answer, or am I, am I reaching there? No, I think it's reasonable to say Baylor. I mean, they're sitting here at like 23-1 and one right now. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're really good, very clearly. Uh, you mentioned Duke's shooting. I mean, I still am absolutely concerned about Duke's shooting. Uh, their best lineup is Trey Jones, Cassius Stanley, Wendell Moore, Vernon Carey, and probably Matthew Hurt, right? Like, you know, maybe you can make a case that, you know, Goldwire really helps when they're out there, but I think I would still probably lean Hurt. Uh, there's only one shooter in the lineup, in those lineups, because, like, teams still don't really respect Vernon Carey from distance, even if he can occasionally make them. Cassius Stanley's, you know, 33% three-point shooter that you probably shouldn't really trust out there yet. Wendell Moore just doesn't really take threes. And, you know, Trey Jones is obviously an issue. So I I think that the shooting is absolutely a worry for Duke, and I think it's the number one reason why I would not predict them to win the title this year. Yeah, they've got guys that can shoot with, like, Baker and O'Connell, Goldwire, but they take things away in other departments that you need Stanley and Moore on the court for. So, yeah, I – I buy that. I just watched Joey Baker and Jack White make a bunch of threes against Notre Dame, so maybe I'm being a prisoner of the moment after watching that performance. Yeah, and you know, I think we should talk about the two. Maybe maybe we should talk about all three mid-major teams here because Gonzaga, San Diego State, and Dayton are three of the top six teams in Ken Palm right now. I guess we'll start with Gonzaga. Um, I think Gonzaga is probably the team I have the most faith in right now other than Kansas. I think that they would be my number two. I think their best player is Corey Kispert, so I don't feel great about saying that they're my number two team. Uh, but they have Petrushev and Timmy to be able to hold down the interior. Uh, Killian Tilly, assuming he plays in some regard in the tournament, like even if he can give them 20 minutes a night, I think that would be huge. I think Joel Ayai is a huge, huge part of the reason that their perimeter is solidified and that they have enough 
perimeter playmaking to actually be able to make a run. Because like you said, Ryan Woolridge is not a guy that, you know, is someone who will really truly be able to be a point guard uh, that creates everything at the end of games and at the end of shot clocks. Admon Gilder is certainly not one of those guys. I think he's mostly just a floor spacer at this stage. So having a Yai out there and able to create, I think, is a critical thing that really pushes Gonzaga into that next tier for me. Yeah, he's he's taken the, the Mark Few redshirt year. I guess it wasn't last year that he redshirted, but uh, his development has been incredible and you know started coming off the bench at the beginning of the year and now they like almost can't get him off the floor because right. he shoots he gets he gets to the basket he defends really well he's long um so yeah he's he's been incredible i love that lineup every once in a while they'll throw out when tilly is healthy where they play tilly and the four guards and it's just like hey we're gonna score 1.4 points per possession on you and you have to deal with it <laughs> yeah uh I am going to be very interested to see what Gonzaga's final closing lineup is. It's probably Petrushev, Tilly, Kispert, Ayayi, and Woolridge, right? Like, you probably don't play Gilder. But, you know, the, the Tilly thing kind of throws off what they do, not even best, but, like, it just kind of throws off, you know, playing smaller sometimes with Kispert at the four. Sometimes they play two true bigs. Having Tilly, I guess, gives them a lot of versatility, but it also kind of creates – not a headache, but just a, a a logical problem for Mark Few to solve, I think, with this group. Yeah, and when he's when he's out, they they really only go six deep because he clearly doesn't really trust Arlovskis yet. He doesn't trust Zakharov, so they're they're limited by that. And if Tamir Petrushev gets in foul trouble, they get really shorthanded. So they need him for both versatility and just simple depth, because otherwise they only got those six guys. So San Diego State sitting here at twenty six and zero. I may or may not have lost money on them yesterday uh, betting Boise State money line because that was, to me, really the maybe the best chance. Maybe you can say Nevada on the road, the final game of the year, is a dangerous game as well. But they just blew the doors off of Boise State, especially in the second half yesterday. Uh, what are your thoughts on San Diego State and if they can make a deep NCAA tournament run? I surrender. San Diego State, I surrender. I resisted for so long. I kept making the argument about that I made earlier about the talent level. Um, their best players are a transfer from Washington State and Vanderbilt. How could they be this good? Well, Jim, they are. So I'm accepting it. Um, I still think like the, the ceiling in an NCAA tournament is not quite as high as some of these other teams, like Gonzaga that we just talked about. But I, I, I'm done thinking they're just going to get upset by some 8-9 seed in the second round because – Every time they get put in a similar kind of environment, like they did uh, at Boise, I mean, it's not, you know, they're not quite up to the level of an 8C, but at Utah State, they did it. Uh, neutral courts against Iowa Creighton, like they've been so good every time, always answering the bell. And Flynn's been like a legitimate All American guy. So I, I surrender. This team is great. Uh, I, I'm not going to pick them to the Final Four, but it wouldn't surprise me. I've long been a big Malachi Flynn fan in general. I do think that they're benefiting somewhat from, you know, the Mountain West isn't down, but there isn't another real challenger in that league just because uh, Utah State never really emerged, unfortunately, somewhat due to injuries, and they're getting better. I think they've won something like seven of their last eight or eight of their last nine or something like that, and they're figuring things out, but, you know... 
I will be interested to see what this team looks like in the NCAA tournament. And, and I know that they've beaten BYU and Creighton in Iowa. Like, this is not a team that did nothing in the non-conference, too. Uh, they certainly have earned their place in the top five. I'm with you. I'm still struggling with the talent level a little bit. And, like, maybe maybe we shouldn't struggle with that. Maybe we should just recognize the fact that everyone is so close in terms of talent this year that togetherness and just how set up you are defensively and how well your pieces fit together offensively will play a bigger role because, you know, this team essentially plays great five-out basketball, right? Like, all five of their, uh, you know, most played players slash starting lineup in uh, Malachi Flynn, Matt Mitchell, KJ Fagan, Jordan Shackle, and Yanni Wetzel. Like all three of the, or all five of those guys are up over 37% from three right now. It's really hard to defend these guys in space, especially when you have Flynn being able to create like he can. And then for them to be as good defensively as they are, maybe they are just this good, but it, the talent level is what it is. Like it's hard. Yeah, I kind of like the way you just framed that though. With We just talked about how, Baylor is this way. They don't have pros, yeah. and they're as good as they are. So why why can't I accept that with San Diego State? It's probably some sort of bias. And, and I think and San Diego wrong. State like, yeah. has a better pro than what Baylor does. Like, I think Malachi Flynn is better than Jared Butler and all of the Baylor guys. Yeah, so I, maybe when looking at it that way, it's like they've figured things out. They've got their – they know who they are offensively. They know who they are on defense, and that's that seems to be what matters this year. Do you like Dayton more or less than San Diego State? I like Dayton more. I, I partially it's, it's because I just love watching Dayton play, and I've seen them up close in Maui, and they are just they are just fun. Like they are having a blast at all times. They're feeding off crowd energy, so they're very enjoyable to watch and aesthetically pleasing. Um, but I, ju- I just think that their offensive ceiling and, and with Obi Toppin in the middle and they're they're like San Diego State where they play five guys that can shoot. Uh, I like them a little bit more, and, and maybe I don't have a ironclad reason for it, but I, I would lean Flyers in San Diego State versus Dayton if, if, if forced to pick. Where do you stand? For a long time, I've said Dayton, and for a long time, I've kind of assumed that Dayton was going to be the team in my Final Four. But the more that I think about how good San Diego State is on defense while being able to play similarly five out, uh, if not even more, five out than what Dayton can. I kind of think it is San Diego State because Jalen Crutcher and Obi Toppin is a better one-two punch than Yanni Wetzel and Malachi Flynn, in my opinion. But I think I like the other like top three, top four pieces. And look, neither of these teams go super deep. So, you know, really it is top three, top four that we're talking about with these two. Uh, I think I do default to guys like Matt Mitchell, Jordan Shockle, uh, KJ Fagan, uh, who's the uh, Pulliam, that guy? Yeah, like, yeah, Trey Pulliam, yep. Yeah, like I think he's probably just as good as like someone like Rodney Chapman is for uh, Dayton. You know, not to say Chapman isn't useful, but Chapman also turns it over like crazy. Um, Ryan Michael's like kind of a fake shooter, but he's a fake shooter that you can also run like four or five dribble handoffs with Obi Toppin uh, in horn sets because he's so good at handling the ball at six foot seven as a four man. Like they do just have so much versatility. And like E.B. Watson is a former uh, Michigan player that certainly has high major talent and is able to knock down shots and Trey Landers can knock down shots. And, you know, Crutcher is a really good closer. They're very, very close. I do think that I would default to San Diego state because I like their, you know, 
three through six pieces better, and I like their defense a little bit better, even though I think Dayton's offense is the best group of you know the four potential units between San Diego State offense, defense, Dayton offense, defense. Do you think San Diego State needs Mensa back to to get to their absolute ceiling? Or I mean, they've been so good without him. Like I, I don't want to be unfair to them. So I, I just I don't know. I think his rim protection against like Iowa and Creighton mattered. Where if they played those guys again without him, I'm not sold that they'd have the same effectiveness. Oh man, that's a tough question. I think that they could really use him, like you said, in very specific matchups where they're going to be playing, you know, again, if they get matched up with Kansas in their regional, like say that, you know, the committee doesn't respect San Diego state and gives them a two seed and they end up stuck in the Midwest with Kansas, right? Like Yanni Wetzel is going to get fucking buried by you. <laughs> like, and they just don't really have a recourse for that. Right. Um, same with Duke, right? Like if they get stuck with Duke and Duke's their two seed, um, if they end up as the one, like they're the one in the East and Duke is the two, that's yep. really tough for them to deal with Vernon Carey. So like, yeah, I think that it would really help if they got Mensa back. Like I think that that will actually play a critical role for them in being able to match up with specific teams in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think that that's the most likely scenario right now is that they get the one in the East and they're – their two is Duke or Maryland, both of whom have like a legitimate inside scoring threat that they can just throw the ball to and beat up on him inside. So probably need him to reach the ceiling. But I mean, they they could still make the Final Four even if he doesn't come back. But yeah, I, because all these teams could lose before the Elite Eight. Like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like it'd be very easy to envision a circumstance where Duke gets knocked out by some seven seed, right? Uh, it'd be very easy to envision a circumstance where Maryland loses in the round of 32 because of Mark Turgeon making errors in judgment, right? Like nothing is for sure this season. And I think that all three of these teams are absolutely very genuine, real final four contenders. Uh, Who is your favorite kind of under the radar team right now? Oh boy. Um, There's there. It kind of answer differs between the team I really like watching, which would be Creighton and the team that I really like think is a threat to go far, and I guess I would probably go Texas Tech there. I knew you were um, going to say Texas Tech for some reason. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm too predictable. Um, I don't know why I well, knew. I just knew. They, you know, they've won, you know, what, like four out of five or something like that? Yeah. Does So does Kentucky count as under the radar because it's 30th in Ken Palm and probably get a four or a five seed? I don't think you can ever call Kentucky under the radar, to be honest. Um, All right, fair. But they are just, they are twenty five to one are. to win the title. They're twenty five to one to win the title, and I think that's not bad for a Kentucky team. Yeah, we're gonna get the futures near the end. Uh, that is one where I will almost certainly be laying money down. Um, okay. I think twenty five <laughs> to one is too high for this Kentucky team. I think they're probably one of the five most talented teams in the country, and I trust John Calipari to figure some shit out. Um, I do. I'm intrigued by the Creighton one, if only because this could be a year where good guard play really just kind of brings you home, right? In the yep. tournament, and Marcus Zagorowski, Tyshawn Alexander, Mitch Ballack, like these are three guys that are genuinely elite guards, and they've won like seven out of eight in a Big East that I think is probably the second deepest league in the country behind the Big Ten. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're... In Q1A games, they're four and three. Like they've beaten some really good teams, and they're clearly capable if they go on a neutral court of 
of knocking off somebody. You know, they can get hot from the outside and outscore you. The defense certainly has some questions. Um, but if the offense is hot, if they're knocking down shots, they can outscore just about anybody. And we've seen we've seen teams win with offense in the NCAA tournament recently. Like Villanova wasn't super elite defensively with some of their teams, but they just you could not stop them. And Creighton has has a similar ability. Uh, I'm not sure they're you know, they're obviously not as elite as, as Villanova has been, but they're top five offense in the country, and I feel pretty comfortable saying that. Yeah, I do totally agree uh, that. Creighton is a top five offense, if only because like Greg McDermott is ridiculously good at putting his guys in position to succeed. Uh, I love the fact that this is a team that just always consistently will play four out basketball. Like you, you don't have to worry about that. Like even though Damian Jefferson doesn't uh, really make shots, he consistently has the green light to take them. Right. Uh, the fact that they're as small as they are maybe is, a little bit of a worry to me. Like they could really don't play anyone over six foot seven. It's pretty no. great actually. <laughs> yeah. Cause they'll play five out at sometimes Denzel Mahoney at center. He's six, five, two twenty five. Like that's, it's fun to watch. It definitely hurts their defense. But one thing I, about Creighton that, you know, there's the people that'll be like, they haven't made the sweet 16 in, you know, since, since they've had to win games to get there. Like I think they were in the sweet 16 back when there were only 16 teams in the tournament, but I hate that. I, I, you know, a team is has never been somewhere until they have. So, I never want to hear that as like an argument against them. That's I just want to put that out there. <laughs> uh, I'm here for that. How do you feel about Seton Hall? Because uh, up until their last couple of losses here, I felt like they were my one of my favorite teams in the country. Yeah, I I, I kind of was backed into I backed myself into a corner, I should say, in the in the preseason talking about how I wasn't sure I believed in them to improve enough internally to be elite. And they have totally laughed in my face on that. Um, I thought if they got a lot better, it'd be because Obiagu came in and was a, a star at center, but Romero Gill has taken that role. He's another potential defensive player of the year candidate. Uh, he wasn't the finalist for it, but he's been one of the best shot blockers in the country. He's developed offensively too. And they have, an army of, of long guards with McKnight, who's elite defensively, and then Roden, Kale, uh, Shavar Reynolds. So they, they've they've lived up or far exceeded my expectations. And despite the recent losses, uh, I trust them probably down the stretch more than, say, even Villanova, which is surprising to me. I really want to love the Villanova team. I really want to love them so much. <laughs> Like, everything about them is, like, a team that I would typically really buy into. Like, I really love Sadiq Bey. Uh, I think they have, like, three guys that will play in the NBA at some point on this team between Bay, Robinson Earl, and, you know, even though Brian Antoine, you know, gets sent to Siberia for, like, half the time. Uh, I yeah, think he's Antoine, nailed to the bench. <laughs> yeah, I think at some point he's probably going to play in the NBA and hope at some point this season he kind of figures out how to uh, make an impact on this team. And Justin Moore as well, I think, has a very real shot at some point to play in the NBA too. Uh, I just really – and, like, they've improved a lot defensively over the course of the season as well. Like, I think that's the number one thing. They kind of backslid a little bit in that early February stretch. But the last couple of games, I think they've been really good dealing with Marquette and Marcus Howard. The way that they kind of shut down Temple over the weekend was really impressive. Um, I just – there's something missing here. I don't know what it is. It feels like maybe 
maybe shot creation for what this group needs to be offensively for where their defense is. Like maybe that's it. I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. Once the ball gets in the lane, they're like perfect offensively. It's just the first step of getting it there. Like the first dribble drive getting by someone is it's not quite there, but they know how to do like the, the ball movement is precise after that. They, they spread the floor with a bunch of shooters and they hit the right guy, but if they can't get that first drive to where the defense has to bend and start rotating, then they really stall out. That's that's my uh, diagnosis of it. Yeah, I agree in the fact that, like, Colin Gillespie's having a really good year. Um, I don't mean to, like, crap on Colin Gillespie to be sure, but, you know, he's not the most explosive guy. Like, the, he would be the perfect point guard if Brian Antoine was the guy that we thought Brian Antoine was, basically. Yes, where Antoine could be the guy that beats his man, gets gets past him, and forces a double, and then the rotations happen, and Colin Gillespie's waiting off ball to just bury threes. Then it's perfect. But right. if he's yeah, if Gillespie's running all the pick and rolls, then I'm not quite sure it gets there. Do we trust Maryland? <laughs> I shit you not, I wrote down on my notes, I want to ask you, do we trust Maryland? Like, literally <laughs> word for word. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to. I think to. we have very similar answers here. Uh, I want to also. I, I, I made the comparison yesterday to somebody that kind of is kind of a Devon Dotson light to me, where he's he, he does a lot of similar things and he hits more shots from the perimeter. And they, they even kind of like move similar to me, so I guess they remind me remind me of each other physically, but that, that late run against Michigan State at Michigan State, I think finally pushed me over the edge where I'm I'm going to accept it, and I think I'm sort of going to trust them, pick them to the Sweet 16, unless there's a really bad matchup. Oh, man. <laughs> I kind of think Jalen Smith, like, might be the best player in college basketball right now. Like, he's certainly up there, if not the best. He, he doesn't miss threes anymore, so that helps. Yeah, I I think that Anthony Cowan is also just, like, good now. Yes, it's finally come as a senior. He, he's he got it figured out. He steps up at the right moment. He kind of, like, defers for most of the game. But, man, those three shots he hit against Sparty was like, that's exactly what I expected Winston to do to them. And instead it was Cowan doing it to, to Michigan State. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether or not to find them. They've won, like... <laughs> What? I think it's like eight games in a row, and they've beaten a bunch of really good teams, and they've won games on the road. Like, they beat Illinois on the road. They beat Indiana on the road. They beat Michigan State this weekend on the road. And I still don't know, like, I, if I would trust one of Eric Ayala or Aaron Wiggins to consistently knock down shots or to consistently do anything, really. Like, that's a significant problem, too. Like, they don't really consistently do anything well. I wish that I wish they had the third guy that I trusted. Basically, uh, Morcel has been pretty good, but he's still a little bit too inefficient for me. Like I wish they just had that number three option that I really liked. Yeah, like one more wing scorer that doesn't need to get his own that often, but the guy that you know is going to hit the big shots. And yeah, it's it's not quite there. You got your your point guard center combo, but the wings they're going to need one guy to play well every night, and there could be a night where none of them plays well offensively. Yeah. Oh, man. I really want to buy into this Maryland team, but I think that they're kind of set to go home early. Um, what do we think is wrong with Louisville also? 
Boy, I, I, your answer is as good as mine. Uh, they just, like, didn't try last week. It, it was weird. Like, Jordan Wara got benched, and his stats were absolutely abysmal for both games, combined for seven points. He only took two two-pointers. So, like, it's not like he was even trying to get to the basket, took two free throws. It just seems like they're, I don't know if it's the February doldrums or if they're just disinterested right now because it's bizarre that those two games – just lifeless. The Clemson game, they just they weren't even there. It was weird, awful loss for them to be so unmotivated. Do you have any insight on what's going on there? Yeah. Um, I think part of it is Jordan Wara is just kind of who he is, right? We all expect, you know, he averages 23 a night, and uh, we expect him to be this creator when really he's more of just a spacer that can attack closeouts and you need if teams like make an effort to take him out of the game, I think that they can take him out of the game. Now, with David Johnson kind of emerging and being able to take on a bigger role and being able to take on a more uh heavy usage role within their offense, I think that it could lead to a situation where he is uh where they can mitigate those issues with Jordan Wara, right? And I think that Samuel Williamson, uh, you know, my hot take is I think Samuel Williamson's probably their best long-term pro prospect. It's either him or Johnson. Um, I buy I think, that. He's got, I think, he's got the size on the wing. That's for sure. Yeah, Williamson I think is going to keep getting better, and Dwayne Sutton's kind of the guy that, you know, can just do all the dirty work and can uh, defend and rebound and make shots efficiently, even if he's not like some unbelievable three point shooter. Like that's the guy that like I would want to get into training camp as like an exhibit 10 guy for people who know the NBA. Like uh, I would want him as a training camp invite every day of the week. Uh, And they have the size inside with Enoch and Malik Williams to be able to figure it out enough there. And, you know, because of Johnson, they have the point guard hole taken care of. I still think this team's going to be fine, but they're almost going to be better off using Wara as just like their spacing slash like decoy guy. And then if teams stop guarding him, uh, just letting him loose and letting him knock down threes. Yeah, the, the freshman emergence has been huge for them. And like part of it, too, I'm not anywhere near giving up on this team just because I really trust Chris Mack. And, you know, it's fine if. They have a couple of lifeless games in February because I believe that in March he's going to run the right things. He's going to push the right buttons where maybe they don't go to the final four, but they're not going to like crap out early. I don't think that that'll think so. I, Yeah. Like they're, they're too good to do that in my opinion, even though last year they kind of did in the first round, but this is a better team than that one. Okay. Who are your five favorite teams that you most enjoy watching? Dayton. Yep. Creighton. On my list. So we covered those two. Dayton and Creighton, Alabama. I think that's probably a surprise one, but they, they took 58 threes fast. in an overtime game. Yeah, super yeah. super fast. And, like, Nate Oates, is, he had preseason quotes where he's like, yeah, we sat them down in a classroom, and I told them what is a good shot and what is a bad shot, and it's, like, very analytically based. They hate mid-range, and I'm a fan of that. Um, I have Iowa written down because they're all offense, no defense, and Luca Garza is just an animal. Um we're going to have the Luca Garza discussion at some point here. Don't don't you worry, okay. Jim. All right, I, I won't I won't overplay my hand then. Um, and if, if I'm looking for like more of a wild card, the other team I wrote down was Baylor, but that's kind of lame. Um, I'll go with St. Mary's because Jordan Ford is just a blast. So I love Jordan. There, Ford there's my five. So much. I love Jordan Ford <laughs> unconditionally. Uh, my favorite team is probably Dayton. Uh, just straight up, I love watching Dayton. Uh, I would say 
I really like watching Kansas play defense. I just really enjoy that group a lot. Uh, man, it gets tough this year, though. Like, there aren't a whole lot of teams that are super great to watch. Uh, I weirdly enjoy watching Kentucky because I think they have a bunch of just tough dudes on their team between, like, Ashton Hagens and Tyrese Maxey and, uh, you know, Nick Richards playing as well as he has inside. I really enjoy them. It's very fun to watch a Kentucky team that makes free throws. Like, it is so refreshing. They're, like, yeah, six in the country in free throw percentage, and – Especially from a gambling perspective, that is always a flaw for a John Calipari team and is like a complete strength this year. And it's very comforting down the stretch of, of games when they're trying to close it out. Yeah, like it's weird that Kentucky is this good as a free throw shooting team, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> we, can, we can live with it and hope it continues. I like watching Stanford because uh, I really like – uh, Tyrell Terry and Spencer Jones, they're two freshmen, but Oscar De Silva's taking a huge step forward. Uh, and then I think that my fifth team is probably Seton Hall. I think th- I just love dudes that have like all kind of toughness and love teams that are all sorts of tough. Like that's that's where I'm at with these guys. Uh, even though that they've lost these last couple of games, I think that they're going to be fine in, in terms of the toughness. So I think those are my five. I like Florida State too, and I love Marquette as well. Uh, Marquette is just super, super fun to watch with Marcus Howard taking like drag screens at half court and setting up to try and knock down a three uh, from 30 feet away. Yeah, they're they're great. It, there's another team that the, some of the role players have shocked me in their progression. Like Sakar Anum is a knockdown three-point shooter now, and I doubted it for a while, and then I watched him more, and I'm like, they, they just go in, and his form's not bad. So I have I've become a believer in that team too. They actually play defense now, which is wild for a Wojo team. Yeah, no question. Uh, I think that getting rid of the Housers helped more than what people would have thought going into the year. Like, everyone melted down, oh, like Marquette was going to be a top five team. And I'm not saying they wouldn't be better without or with the Housers, because I think they probably would be. But uh, the role allocation on this team and the defense, I think, uh, it really is just critical in so many ways to what they've been able to do, especially on defense. Yeah, they've got wings, and Theo John's like the clear enforcer. That's a dude that's terrifying. Uh, would not want to run into him in a back alley. Uh, but he's the enforcer in the paint, and they've got like Bailey, Kane, Annan, McEwen are all pretty switchable, which, you know, they're not elite defensively. I'm probably overstating that, but they're good enough to support the offense that is as good as it is with Howard leading the charge. Yeah, and I mean, if Marcus Howard's going to keep shooting like this and playing like this, I mean, they're going to have a real shot at the Final Four, I think, if only because we watched Buddy Heald carry Oklahoma to a Final Four at one point. Um, who is your National Player of the Year right now? I had I had some long debates about this, and I think my, my final three I got down to is relatively surprising. But my pick, I'll just give you number one. Uh, I think it's Obi Toppin. That would be my, my National Player of the Year right now. So I crazy? No, I agree with you. Uh, he would be okay. also my national player of the year. And I think it's because he unlocks so much of what Dayton can do without Obi. I don't think Dayton could do anything that they really want to on offense with the way that they play five out in an NBA style. Uh, you know, a lot of the sets they run are just straight out of the NBA from Anthony Grant. Um, it's just a really, really good group uh, and a really strong group because Toppin has such great rolling versatility. He has the ability to drive whenever he gets the ball on the perimeter, obviously has the ability to knock down shots. He's a good offensive rebounder uh, that can get putbacks, and he is just such an athlete that you have to account for him defensively at basically every single point. Yep. Yeah, he, he 
the, there's like an emotional element to it too. He, he and Crutcher just kind of like spur everybody on. I know Landers is kind of like a, a big leader in that regard too, but he's so hyped all the time and he's like pumped for his teammates. I've written about it a little on our site where he's like out of the game, but he's standing up defensively, like even on the bench and like celebrating. I, I don't know. I just, I love watching him play. I think he's uh, definitely a worthy candidate for national player of the year. Yeah. Uh, my number two, who, who would your number two be? I'll give you that. All right. These are, these will probably surprise you. Um, two and three for me in some order, Malachi Flynn and Luca Garza. And I don't know if that's insane or not. <laughs> yeah. Let's have the Luca Garza discussion now. I actually would have, I would have Malachi Flynn in my top five. So I don't think that Flynn is that crazy. Let's, let's talk about Garza though, because I think people are, overreacting a little bit to what he does on a statistical basis, because I think a lot of his numbers, I don't want to say that they're empty because he's their centerpiece offensively and they have a top six offense in the country, according to Ken Palm. But I think a lot of their defensive issues stem from him being a nightmare on defense. Okay. I'll buy that. Yeah. I'm probably not giving enough credence to, to the defensive problem there, but the offense has just and maybe like there's an element here to me overcompensating for kind of being down on him for a while, uh, and then the yeah. more I've watched him, the more I've just kind of been like, all right, you know what? He's just really good, and I need to stop doubting it. Um, the I, I just think like Marcus Howard is almost the same way, where he's so good offensively, but does take some things away defensively. Miles um, Powell shooting 25% from three in Big East play, which is not good. Um, so I just like I found enough flaws in some of the other guys that uh, I gave Garza the nod, but I, I definitely hear the defensive argument, and they are certainly not good on D. So if if he's a big part of that, then yeah, that that's a penalty. So I guess like here would be my question: like, who do you think has been more valuable to his team this year, Luca Garza or Yudoka Azubuke? Yeah, I. I have Dotson and Azubuke written down, and it's probably fair to consider both because they both do a ton for them. And we talked a lot about Azubuke's defensive progression and how good they are on D with him on the floor. And yeah, so like, if you just want to so look like at here's, it, Azubuke, yeah, Azubuke makes them the best defense. Garza doesn't make Iowa the best offense. Right. So, that, so that maybe that's a simple way. So, yeah, this would be – that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, Yudoka Azubuke, we can say, is equal to Luka Garza. You know, his defense is equal to Luka Garza's offense, in my opinion. Yep. I think Azubuke is considerably better on offense than Garza is on defense. Yeah, I, I have no rebuttal to that. <laughs> like, if we're, if we're trying to come – it's like saying who is a better player, Rudy Gobert or um, – like, I, I don't even think Luca Garza is like Carl Towns, like, in terms of, like, collegiate-level effectiveness. Uh, is is it, like, Luca Gar... Is it, uh, is it Rudy Gobert, or is it... Um, I'm trying to think of some random, like, spacing three that's, like, also a post-threat. Like, it's not Joel Embiid. It'd be like Nikola Vucevic, almost, to me. Oh, like, yeah, where, where you're like, look at these counting stats, but there's no way the impact is the same, because... Gobert just makes that team defensively. Right. Like Nikola Vucevic is like a 2010 guy in the NBA, but takes a lot off the table defensively. Where, or like Andre Drummond is another guy. Like Andre Drummond puts up 17 and 15 in the NBA, but takes a lot of value off the floor defensively. Um, you know, you look at Rudy Gobert's counting stats, it's, you know, 15 and 14 
right now. You look at Vucevic averaging 20 and 10, you're going to be more impressed by Vucevic. But to me, I mean, like, it's not even a question. I think that folks across the NBA would agree that, you know, someone like uh, Rudy Gobert is just so much more valuable. And I think that uh, that's, that's where the disconnect often comes from, like, people who watch college basketball and talk about, like, Luca Garza being, you know, one of the five best players it's really hard for me to watch him on defense and be like, that's, that's, that's my guy that I trust going into the game as a center, even though he's <laughs> genuinely one of the five best players in the country offensively. Yeah. And there's probably some advantage too of like, there's only 30 teams in the NBA. It's a lot easier to dig into the nuance of nuances of defense for those guys. And yeah. in college, it's just not quite there when there's so many guys to track. But when you're, when you're trying to differentiate between national player of the year candidates, it's, it is a worthwhile conversation to have, and I will I will cede that one to you. Right, and like Marcus Howard, too, point guard defense is just less important than center defense, I, I think is yep. the case. Like, it, you know, your point guard is not the quarterback of your defense. Uh, your center is. And for a center to be such a disaster on defense, which Luca Garza is really bad on defense. Like, people will bring up to me, oh, well, you know, Iowa's biggest problem is that they give up a ton of threes and – uh, you know, the teams just, uh, we, we don't force turnovers while giving up a ton of threes. Yeah, there's a reason for that. It's because when you have Luca Garza out on the court uh, with some of the other guys that they have out on the court, it's just really, really hard to have the mobility that you need defensively. Yeah, like when they're, when they're in rotations, they're not like sending great closeouts the way that Kansas is or something like that. They don't have the athletes. Right, and... Any time that Luca gets matched up on an island with a guard, um, I'm trying like the Purdue game. Go back and watch the Purdue game where they drop like 104 on Iowa. Like Painter basically just spread it out and said, "Okay, we're going to take advantage of whoever Garza is on, and we're either going to hit the guy that helps from Iowa to try and." Uh, slow down the ball handler that Garza is guarding, or we're just going to beat Garza off the dribble, and they just did that constantly. Yeah, when you have to just like the the Michigan game from back in like December where they had a hundred points against Iowa comes to mind as well. If they have to just go zone as like a we cannot guard you man to man, then it's probably an indication that you have some serious serious defensive problems. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I would have Marcus Howard too. On my uh, on my um, national player of the year rankings, and I think it's because while Marcus is not a great defender, I don't think he hurts you as much as Luca Garza does on offense. I think that Howard is a better offensive player than Luca Garza, to be honest. And just with the ability to draw fouls now and get into the paint, in addition to the elite level pull up shooting, um, and there, I mean, just look at the fact that they're a much better defense than what Iowa is. It's really just not even debatable, right? So, yep. uh, yeah, no, I, I would go Howard at two. Malachi Flynn would be up there for me. I still would probably have Peyton Pritchard up there, would you? Ooh, that's a good call. I, I missed writing him down, but, yeah, he's he's kind of checking the boxes as counting stats and, like, just eye test impact. He makes that team go with – Richardson's been good off the ball next to him, but he's, he's the leader and – He's made Oregon pretty much what they are. So, yeah, I would have him probably top five. I would honestly have Jalen Smith, I think, in the top five. And, like, people are going to complain about the counting numbers and everything, but he's anchoring a top five defense and averaging, I think it's 
He's averaging like 19 and 10 and three blocks over the course of their last nine games. Like to me, he's a much more effective player than Garza. Yeah, and his percentages are really, really good. Like he's he's very efficient with all of it. Yeah, 62.6 true shooting, uh, great defensive rebounding rate, really good offensive rebounding rate. Uh, not a passer, which I think is a problem for him, especially in translation to the next level. But uh, just the fact that he is the centerpiece of a top five defense in the country in addition to averaging 18 and 11, or you know, he's probably at, in terms of his full season numbers, 16 and 10 or whatever. Um, that's that's a better throw, player can, to yeah. me. Can I throw a name at you? I want to see yeah. what you think. Um, it's it's a little similar to Garza, and he's a super impactful uh, offensive big man, but he actually plays for a team that's got a really good defense. So where where are you at with Vernon Carey? Yeah, Vernon's a tough one, I think. Uh, I do think Vernon gives back some on defense, but he's better at – they play a lot of soft coverage with Vernon, obviously, like they're not switching. But what Vernon does better than Luka is he can utilize those two quick slide steps and use his girth to cut off and take up space in the middle of the paint. Uh, I think that that's actually a critical, like, just small thing that makes guys like Vernon Carey playable uh, and super, super valuable on the court uh, and a way that you can get their offensive ability on the court. I do think Luka is better offensively. It would be very close for me between the two of them. And by the way, like, me saying that, like, I have real problems about Luka Garza. Like, I would still have Luka Garza as one of my 20 to 15 best players in the country. Um, yeah, so, like, yeah, it's, it's all degrees up here, yep. Yeah, so, like, I would have Vernon probably in a pretty similar range, to be honest, um, to where okay. I have Garza. But both below Azubuke in terms of big guys, for sure. I do think I would have them both below Azubuke and Jalen Smith. I do. Okay. I'll buy that. And then Miles Powell, I think, is probably the other one that has to be mentioned just because yeah, Miles counting has been stats re- and, yeah, the team is good. Yeah, Miles has been really good this year, no question. Um, yeah, just he's struggled to shoot it. Like, the shooting has really fallen off a cliff in uh, Big East play, unfortunately. Like you said, 25% from three in his 13 conference games right now. And I think it's hard to make a case for him as, like, the number one guy when you're doing that. Yeah, like maybe I felt like around Christmas um, that he had been put himself up there. But, yeah, with the shooting falling off, he hasn't been super efficient. Like it's hard to say his season's been a lot better than Marcus Howard's in any way. Yeah. Um, I don't think we need to mention Daniel Aturu, but Aturu's really good. And I, again, think I would rather have Aturu than Luka Garza. Yeah, it's just it's a bummer that they're 12 and 12. Right. Been able like, to get over the hump. If I'm being honest, like – I would probably rather have a Turu, but I also think it's reasonable to make the case that uh, because I was 18 and eight and Minnesota's 12 and 12, you know, putting Luca Garza ahead of Daniel Turu on the national player of the year list. Yeah. Garza just dropped like 24 and 10 on him uh, yesterday. So, right. Right. I think he's um, actually then, outplayed him in both games that they played against yeah. each other. So yeah, I would probably have Luca ahead of a Turu in a national player of the year ranking, but I know that Aturu is similarly putting up ridiculous numbers. Yeah. Cassius Winston was like the obvious preseason pick, but Michigan state's fallen off a little bit and he hasn't been quite up to the standards of last year. So I don't have him quite at the top of the conversation that I, that I expected to coming into the season. Yeah. And like Philip Petrashev is another guy that's averaging like 17 and 10 top 10 in Ken Palm player of the year. I, 
just think he's interchangeable with Drew Timmy, basically. Yep. On that totally team. agree. Yeah. Um, and like the system gives you numbers on that team. Um, I mean, a guy that's like way under the radar that I think should get, and like this isn't even a guy that like I typically would love, but Lamar Stevens is carrying Penn State to twenty and five right now. <laughs> like he would be in that's, my top ten. That's something we 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 talked this a little on uh, our podcast last week on Three Man Weave that like he's been really really good, but not all American like efficient, which is I thought for them to be as good as they are right now, he would need to be like shooting 35% from three and, and just like otherworldly efficient, but their guards have been so good that they honestly like haven't needed him to be as good as I expected. And it's really impressive. Like Myron Jones, Miles Dredd, those guys have been a lot better than, than I thought they would be. Yeah. And you know, Mike Watkins still is a great shot blocker inside, but, uh, yeah, you just look at the fact that Penn State is very clearly an NCAA tournament team. They are, I believe, one game out in the Big Ten race. Like, Yep, one one back in Maryland. I think it's tough to make a case that Lamar Stevens is not one of the top ten players in the country right now. Yeah, and the, the wild part is we mentioned like three or four Big Ten guys before we even got to him. The, the conference is just stacked. Yeah, and to be honest, like, I would pick Lamar Stevens over – all of them except I think Jalen Smith. I think I would go Jalen Smith ahead of all of these guys, uh, especially maybe it's hard because like Jalen's first month was not great. Um, Like he was, his numbers just weren't commensurate with a national player of the year candidate. And he's more of an all American candidate, I think than like a real national player of the year candidate. But like, it's it's hard to put together a top five this year because the talent across the board is so tight. Yeah, you have a lot of decisions between like the big numbers guy or the or the team success guy or yeah. so yeah. You you can go a lot of different directions there. Yeah. If I if I had to put together a genuine top five right now, I think I would go Obi Toppin at one, Marcus Howard at two, Malachi Flynn at number three. I think I would go Jalen Smith at number four. <laughs> and then maybe I I personally I think Pritchard would be my five. Probably up, Pritchard. It's probably Pritchard, yeah. Especially like if Maryland wins the Big East or Big Ten, I'm sorry. If Maryland wins the Big Ten, which, you know, right now I think they're pretty clearly the favorite to win the Big Ten. It's gonna be hard for I think people to not have Jalen Smith in this like top 10 of yeah, you know, the national I, player of the year. I think there's a contingent of people that view Colin as more important, which, you know, right or wrong, that just hurts Jalen Smith a little bit. Which is crazy to me. Cause like Anthony Cowan has been really <laughs> good this year, but like it's crazy to me to consider that he might be better than Jalen Smith. Jalen Smith's been ridiculous this year. Um, yeah, Smith's the better player. Collins hit some, like, big shots that I think, you know, maybe just stand out to people. Like the the winner against Illinois, the first matchup, the couple against Michigan State. Uh, he's just like a, a late-game closer guy that might be more appealing to, uh, like, a, a wider fan base. I don't know. Yeah. And then I'm going to close with this question before I let you go. Who is the most fun player to watch in college basketball? Give me your top five most fun players. Fun players. Um, I will just. I mentioned Alabama earlier. I'll say Kyra Lewis is up there because yep. he is blindingly fast. And to end, uh, Devon Dotson is similar in that he he's just 
super super fast. Uh, I really like this is a this is a gym answer. This is weird. Uh, I really like watching Jake Toulson play for BYU because I really like guards that post up, and he has like okay this weird this weird like post up game. They don't use it as much now that Yoli Childs is back, but uh, again, this is a little bit influenced by. Uh, being in Maui and, and getting up close and personal with those teams. Well, and um, you're stop- what like a six four dude. Did did you post up smaller guys whenever you were young? Oh yeah, I was like a, a three four tweener that wanted to be a forward but didn't have the height. So yeah, I, I I really enjoyed that anytime I got to play guard and had a, had a smaller guy on me. So maybe that's yeah, it's like very near and dear to my heart. <laughs> I love um, that. Give me a couple more. And I, Obi Toppin, I can't not say yep. Obi Toppin just because he's ridiculously fun. Um, and how about, well, I said St. Mary's and Jordan Ford. Definitely not Brad Davison and Wisconsin. I'll say that. Uh, and I miss I miss Isaiah Joe for Arkansas. I like miss watching him. Dearly. Him. Miss him dearly, yeah. chucking up threes. Uh, this is an Isaiah <laughs> Joe positive podcast. Uh, <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Safe space. <laughs> it's a safe space here. Uh, number one for me is Grant Riller this year at Charleston. Oh, I like that. Yep. Uh, so creative off the bounce and is such an incredible finisher. He's knocking down shots from distance this year. I think he's just one of the best guards in the country, and he plays such a fun style of play. Uh, number two for me would be uh, probably Obi Toppin. Uh, I would say that, you know, I don't know that we need any more explanation. Obi Toppin is just obscenely fun to watch. No. He is. Can I, can I give a note on Riller quick? Yeah, please. Um, yeah, we we hung out at 3x3u last year at the final yeah. four. He is going to be a monster in that setting. I don't know if he's going to be able to play in it, to be honest. Oh, uh, don't tell me he's too good for it. He I, might I, be too good because he might be like a very real pro prospect. Right, Foreman got drafted, so I'm hoping that maybe uh, I'm trying to push he'll, he'll Grant. Still stick around. Put it this way, I'm going to have Grant in my top 30 at the end of the year. Like, I am. I'm very in on Grant. But maybe don't I'm the only one. Out of, don't take him out of my three-on-three, three, Sam. I will I, I will not be happy with you. <laughs> oh, I apologize, Jim. It's possible. He might play. He really just might play because Jarrell had so much fun with it last year. Um, yeah. Number three, I would say Ashton Hagens. I love watching Ashton Hagens play. He's just a leader. Uh, I know that, you know, from the efficiency standpoint, from uh, – you know, the turnover standpoint, Ashton is not, you know, some unbelievable, uh, overwhelming point guard, but that dude is tough as shit. He defends his ass off. He's like, if you watch their games and if you've gone to a couple of their games this year and was with you in Vegas when they played, um, who they play in Vegas? They played Ohio State. Um, yep. And you just like watch the way that that team kind of flocks to him. It's very clear that he's the one who's the, like the energy giver on their team, the guy that they really just rely on to get uh, very, very positive, uh, very, very positive energy, or whenever they need a kick in the ass, like he's the guy that they'll give it to. Um, yeah, the, the second half against Vanderbilt, uh, like a week ago, really stands out to me. They were down at halftime, and he just like, Nick Richards had a couple blocks, but Hagen's lit a fire under them, had some just ridiculously good passes that spurred that comeback, and they ended up winning by you know, comfortably by like 12. Yeah, no doubt. And then number four would be Xavier Tillman. I've talked about Xavier Tillman a lot uh, on this podcast. I just like guys that are so technically sound in everything that they do. Um, 
his ability, to, he's like the best screen setter in college basketball, I think. Uh, his versatility in setting screens, the way that he makes contact with guys, he can short roll, he can pop out, he can be like a legit lob roll threat. Um, his synergy with Cassius Winston in the pick and roll is unbelievable, I think. And then the fifth guy, oh man, who, there are a lot of guys out there. I really like Malachi Flynn. I really like, uh, um, I even like like watching like DJ Carton, you know, get better soon. DJ Carton. Uh, yes. I really hope that you can fight through the demons you're fighting with. Um, Ooh, I've got I, one more name. I, I enjoy I watching say. Luca Garza too. He's just like yep. not great in my opinion. He's great, but like he's not <laughs> like one of the five best players in the country in my opinion. I got to I got to shout out my little guy Kendrick Davis for SMU. Ooh, yeah, Randall. He's, uh, the, yeah, not not quite necessarily a tournament team, but they're somebody I bet on a lot this year, so I'm. I've, I've seen them quite a bit. They're a top 10 offense, and he's this little 5'11 dynamo that sticks in the country in assist rate. He gets wherever he wants on the court, and he makes free throws. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Kendrick Davis, formerly of TCU, and he's been a, a difference maker for them this year. Uh, I'll, I'll give my final guy. He's going to be on Yeka Kongwu at USC. We haven't nice. talked about him at all, but he's just such a monster on both ends. He's productive. He plays hard every possession. Um, yeah, I, I love guys like that. Like, I, I just really want dudes who play incredibly hard, who can fill a variety of roles, and who can just do a million different things and help you win. I've seen a little – at least one or two people on draft Twitter have had him first. Is that – how how high are you on Okongwu? Uh, I have him like eighth or so, something like that. Okay. Uh, I think first is difficult. For someone who is a six foot nine center, um, that's very diplomatic of you. But you know, and like just to be real, there is no NBA evaluator I've talked to who has a Kongwu like in the top four, even. Okay. But like, there are teams that will consider him like at five or something like that. I think like he's he's a genuinely elite prospect this year for what it is. Yeah, I'm surprised he wasn't a top ten recruit. Like it just. Looking back at the at the rankings, yeah. he was more like twentieth or so. He wasn't even a McDonald's All American, which was the dumbest thing in the world to me. I had I had him as a first rounder entering the year, even like you figure wow. a guy who's like a you know twenty fifth overall recruit in the country that that would not be the case. But I've just been out here and I've seen him enough. I was like, this is gonna work. Like this dude works hard. He's gonna be a great player immediately. Uh, he is. Yeah, he's awesome. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I. I I've enjoyed watching him. The duels are the, out in the Pac-12 with him and Stewart and Najee. Those have been great to watch. All right. And I mentioned earlier that I'm going to make you do college basketball futures. Who are your favorite college basketball NCAA tournament futures right now? Right now, I think the, the first one I already mentioned was Kentucky. Gave that away. Um, I like Texas Tech. And I know you're going to roll your eyes at me again at that. Um, I, I mean, like, I trust Chris Beard implicitly, so I'm not even going to, like, roll my eyes at it. It's just <laughs> that's a young team led by Jamias Ramsey and Terrence Shannon, who is, like, semi-hurt right now. And, like, I just worry that they don't have enough talent. But we'll see. Um, and then a couple longer ones. It just surprised me to see Butler at 100-1, to 1, given that they're probably, you know, a four or a five seed and have been pretty good. Uh, maybe not as good lately with Aaron Thompson hurt, but when, when oh, he's man. been healthy, they've been excellent. I've got Butler at forty-five to one. So if you're getting them okay. at hundred, definitely take them at a hundred. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at at Westgate's odds right now, so that's that is an option. Um, and then I still like Houston quite a bit. 
they're just they have to sort out their their guard rotation. They're all good. They're just not all good on the same day. So they have to figure that out. But that those are two like longer shots uh, that I think are at least worth looking at. I'm trying to pull up uh, pull up Westgate now. So here we go. So where is where is Butler? I'm like missing them. They're like not even on this list that I'm looking at. I don't think, which is probably not great. So they're probably at a hundred. <laughs> um, yeah, I would take Kentucky at twenty five to one for sure. Like I, I will actually bet that. Um, yep. This is a good year to take long odds teams. I feel like because Florida State at forty to one feels pretty good to me. Like they have a couple of potential first round picks. They have a great guard in Trent Forrest. Um, like you can make a case for them pretty easily. I think. Uh, yep. I like that one. I mean, I don't think Illinois is good enough, but they're at a hundred to one. Like that's another one that stands out to me. Um, I still what's, like, what's your, uh, what's your, are you going to say Michigan? I was going to say Michigan state. Okay. I, I like Michigan state too. I actually just bet them a week ago. Uh, I wish I waited until after they at? lost to Maryland, but 19 to one. Yeah. They're still at so. 20. So you didn't lose out on much, but like, yeah, not too much. I, I, I still like Michigan state and Louisville quite a bit. Like, I feel pretty good about those teams at the end of the day. And, like, San Diego State's sitting here at 20-1 to 1 as well. Like, I, I think yeah, I like was... all three of the teams, or all four of the teams that are in the 20-25-1 to 25 to 1 mix right now in Kentucky, San Diego State, Michigan State, and Louisville. Like, I think those are my four. Yeah, it doesn't feel like they have a significantly worse chance of winning than like Duke or even Baylor. So the, yeah, the Baylor, value is, is certainly there. Baylor, Gonzaga and Kansas are all at seven to one. I mean, like I think, like I would, I think Kansas has a better chance to win than all of those teams, but I don't know if I can tell you that, you know, I think Gonzaga has a much better chance to win than San Diego state to the point where I'm getting 13 to one or I'm getting an extra 13, you know? Right. Exactly. That's like I want to bet on Dayton because I just want to cheer for them, but twelve to one feels right or not like good enough odds. So there, there's a lot of teams like that where I'd love to bet on them, but the value is just not there. Yeah, no question. Jim, tell the people where they can find your work. Uh, we are at three mw underscore cbb on Twitter. That is the group handle. I am at Second Chance Points on Twitter. Our website is three man weave dot com. I realize all of that is horrendously marketed but you know we'll figure it out hopefully someday we'll get 3mw.com that's that's a long-term goal for us um we got weekly podcasts we'll be recording tonight we've got some some articles usually two or three a week uh there on the website and then also at si.com uh some writing kai and i are doing their their bubble watch and their bracket watch for this season so we're excited about that uh, i think that's that's pretty much it that's that's the plug section where is matt why is he also not doing the bracket watch? Is Matt the redheaded stepchild of the three-man weave? Matt is not as into bracketology. So he, he, he gets into the sport just as much as us. He'll be doing a lot more of our, uh, our best bets articles at SI Gambling. So we do two of those usually Wednesday morning and Thursday morning. So Matt will be heading up those. Love it. Uh, this has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please go to The Athletic. I'll something up at some point this week. I don't know what it'll be, but all right, at some point. Uh, yeah, I think that that's all I've got for you. So thanks, Jim, for coming on. And until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.